0: Hi, my name is Branko Anlodic and you are listening to the Talking Architecture Design Podcast brought to you from the Architecture and Design Network. Today is the last in our five part series brought to you by the wonderful people at StormTech. Today's guest will be Esther Dickens, a highly respected landscape architect and urban designer with more than 25 years of experience in the industry and the head of Architectus' new Urban Futures team.
1: Architectus has launched a new landscape architecture offering, introducing a number of leading landscape architects to their growing Urban Futures team. The change allows the practice to make an even greater impact than it already has through layered, integrated, design solutions for our cities and communities. The expanded offering will be led by Esther Dickens, a highly respected landscape architect and urban designer with more than 25 years of experience in the industry. Esther comes to Architects from design practice, Scott Carver, where she was a director with a career portfolio of uh, major multidisciplinary projects throughout Australia, Asia and the Middle East. Her standout work includes things like the Canopy Lane, the Canopy Lane Cove, uh, and the Australian War Memorial New Southern Entry and Parade Ground, which were both Scott Carver projects, by the way, as well as the Blacktown Exercise Sports and Technology or Best Hub, as it's sometimes known. So, welcome to Talking Architecture and Design, Esther Dickens.
2: Hi, Branko. Thanks so much for having me.
1: So, why? Should biophilia be important in design, and for that matter, to designers and, and, and to practices out there, uh, in, in your opinion? Or, and can I also ask, is it becoming more important as well?
2: I think it is becoming more important or certainly more recognised. Um, I think it's a big question too because there's so many reasons. Um, so the right question might be um, how can it not be important to any responsible designer, I think. Um, I guess it's important to say that the hypothesis around biophilia, which is you know where biophilia as a term came from, um, is that we as humans have an innate biological and genetic connection with nature, and that that has an impact on our health um, and our well-being. But um, there's now a lot of empirical evidence and research that's showing that that connection to nature has some really incredible impacts on us, on us as human beings. Um, something as simple as a window looking out onto, human, onto um, green space can in fact improve human health in all sorts of ways, reduces anxiety, tension, confusion, um, improves our mood, improves concentration and productivity. And um, to the point where one study has shown that a one-hour walk in nature Showed a, a short-term memory improvement of up to twenty percent compared to people who took that same walk through urban streets. And there's um, research being undertaken at the moment, for example, at the University of Wollongong by Thomas Adselbert, that's showing that a connection to connections to green space have substantial um, impacts that are measurable in health terms in terms of uh, reducing depression, anxiety, dementia, even suicide, um, heart disease and those sorts of things, which obviously have enormous impacts um, on our society. And within our kind of ever urbanising cities with our denser living, the changes in the way that we're working and the environmental challenges that we have now too, like urban heat and more broadly the issues around global warming, we really need to take on everything that we can get, I suppose, about um, the benefits of of working with and incorporating nature. So, and you know, on the other side of that, there is also um, the benefits that nature incorporation of nature and biophilia, if you like, has for all the non-human elements um, that we work with: plants, animals, ecology, um, how we how we work with water, which is um, particularly important in our Australian situation, but also across the world where water is such a a precious resource to us um, and improving its quality and our resilience against things like floods and sea level rise um, is also critical. And on a commercial level, um, it's also been proven, uh, particularly in hospitality and retail environments, to actually increase spending uh, and increase how much people are willing to spend on products up to about 20% and it increases the stickiness of those environments so customers stay longer and that helps them to uh, hang around and spend a bit more money as well. So we're definitely seeing that play out in trends in hospitality uh, with offers that are, are really connected to place and to nature. It's moving this way because it's what their customers are demanding And I think that trend's only accelerated since the pandemic where our kind of general awareness of um, being in fresh air, having more space and being outdoor in outdoor spaces has has gained a real sort of heightened sense. So, yeah, as I said, how can it not be important? It has uh, so many positive benefits to us.
1: Do you think that biophilia is being underutilised? You now urban designs here, and do you think? Well, what are some ways we could change that?
2: I think that overall, um, most urban designers, I would hope to say, certainly good urban designers uh, are understanding the importance um, of uh, biophilia and everything that that can bring. And I guess sometimes we also call it um, green-blue infrastructure at a at a bigger scale. And I think they're also embracing more, uh, or we are as a a design profession, embracing more the um, integration of lots of disciplines, particularly early in the process, that bring all those kind of lenses into a project and make sure that you're getting um, the balance between built form, public domain, open space, and all of those sorts of elements. But obviously, there's always challenges, um, but in particular the pressure on land and construction costs, which um, are always a constraint. And so it's kind of a constant play of um, trying to demonstrate the value um, of green space, uh, both how it benefits the public, how it um is required just to, you know, go through the process of um, getting approvals and that sort of thing, but also, uh, you know, how it might benefit commercially when we're working on um, projects which are for private developers and things like that. Um, So there's various mechanisms that are in place now, and I think quantifying green space in some ways is really important. Um, And as I said, there is research that is starting to delve deeply into how much green space and what kind of green space really has the effects we need in in urban environments to get those improved kind of health outcomes. Um, but things like the ADG, like local DCPs and um, the frameworks and processes that the government architect in New South Wales have in place, all work to push for a balance of development with quality public domain and provision of green space, whether that's public space or communal and private open space as well, Um, and also how landscapes incorporated in and on and around buildings in our cities. So I think it's really, um, it's advancing, probably not as quickly as I would always like to see it. We have a, a provision um, of 25% um, communal open space in multi-res in New South Wales. But in Singapore, for example, it's a it's a one-for-one replacement for your site area. So there's other places that are pushing this further, but certainly our environment also plays into that. Um, bringing green into cities and urban environments in Australia also has a balance to play with water use and um and maintenance and how we keep those things growing. We're not the same tropical environment as some other places.
1: You said green-blue developments. Can you you expand on that, please? I'm not sure what that is.
2: Yeah, I think there's been a term that's been growing, green-blue infrastructure, and I think uh, particularly on larger-scale developments, it's trying to see the the landscape and the waterways and the water systems, all as as a key part of our infrastructure, as we might see services, electricity, roads, uh, and all those other infrastructure elements that happen across our cities. So putting it into that um, frame of being a need within cities and something that needs to be planned on a broad scale. And quite often um, those things come together. So, where we're seeing wider developments that, you know, the management of stormwater often comes into is combined with open space, which is, you know, areas where, honestly, quite often it's not as uh, possible to put development. So, those areas end up left over, and then you have a, you know, a balance of, um, how the public can use those spaces as well as how they have to function for these sort of, you know, real infrastructure um, environments, but where we can naturalise those, take things out of pipes, put uh, water back into creeks, wetlands, water-sensitive urban design, all of that sort of thing. It's really that combination.
1: You mentioned in the bio at the beginning, we've managed a, a number of complex and large landscape and urban design projects. Um, these come with you know, physical, environmental and economic constraints, <laughs> possibly more so economic in <laughs> these days. But anyway, and, and they require mm-hmm. negotiation with authorities, developers, consultants, the whole you know, gaggle of, of, of people you need or supply chain of people that you need to
0: deal with. Which of those have you found are harder
1: to navigate um, or, or getting harder to nav- uh, navigate? And conversely, which are becoming less of an obstacle as uh, time moves on?
2: Uh, the demand for space certainly is probably the hardest to negotiate because it has the most direct impact on on those costs, on development yields and, you know, the how projects really stack up. So it is a matter of trying to advocate um, for a balance. And I think we need more empirical data. Um, not just on things like the health benefits, and some of this is starting um, to come through, but also on what green space brings to sales prices. Um, You know, what difference does it make? It does, there's anecdotal evidence um, and some evidence, you know, coming out now, but if we could track more closely how green space impacts um, prices, then I think we'd alleviate some of that pressure, although, you know, it's always going to remain, I think. Um, and so unfortunately, sometimes we see that the the public spaces, the bits that are left between the buildings are really the areas that are for some reason can't be used or are simply uh, the spaces that have to be provided for separation between buildings or for roads. Um, so they're not always designed Um, I sit on a number of design panels and often you know I see landscape architects who are doing their absolute best to deliver amazing spaces with what they've been given Uh, but if the spaces could have been considered from the beginning as part of um, another place that is being created then they would have a better basis to work on so We certainly advocate on our projects and um, now with Architectus, we have the ability to work very early at the strategic stages with our urban designers to get involved early on, to bring all those kind of perspectives about thinking about planning to balance the public and private interests and we really believe strongly that when that's done really well, it does provide better outcomes on both sides, uh, both for the public and commercially. It's just sometimes hard to prove that in dollar value.
1: Would you say, from an industry point, that landscape design has been a bit underrated up until now? I see it as gaining a lot, more whole new level of respect. Uh, obviously, with as you said earlier, you know, you know that there are these these well-being and sustainability. Uh, attributes and advantages. Um, I, can, I can tell you from my own experience. There's, there's nothing, not, nothing is, is so demoralising than than opening your window in your, in your home office and you're staring at a colorblind fence. Do you think that over the, the, the landscape design, biophilia, biophilic design is gained a whole new level of respect? And do you think that that will continue?
2: I do. Yes, I think it's been um, it it's been expanding for a long time uh, across my career. I think I've seen that progression and I it was one of the reasons that I moved into landscape and away from architecture very early in my career because it felt even then like a profession that had a, an ever-broadening and expanding kind of horizon ahead of it. But Oh, and over that time really have seen um, the respect grow, I suppose. It, it feels a lot less difficult um, to to press for the balance, to convince people about the importance. I think that has really accelerated during um, and since the pandemic as well, uh, put everybody into a really different perspective where they relied so much more on their local areas and what was within their five kilometres or whatever their particular radius was. And so it also really brought out the the disparities in different areas about what access there was um, and in particular aspects like the importance of providing really quality green space in the west of Sydney, which was hit very hard um, in the pandemic, whereas if you're on the east and you could get to the beach, maybe life wasn't so bad. So it's certainly growing. Um, there's the imperative for us all to develop in much more sustainable and resilient ways. I think every day we're seeing more um, tales of, of heat and fires and all of those sorts of things that just seem to be accelerating. So there's certainly the need for us um, and the understanding, which is pushing government policy uh, and it pushes the expectation of clients, uh, whether that be more broadly in terms of their own uh, ESG commitments or its tenants or customers that are pushing them at that kind of granular level to do better uh, and to deliver more on their own kind of green goals, I suppose, um, as part of their whatever it is that they're delivering. And it's something that kind of really has come into the principles not just what's good for them, uh, you know, as a corporate, but I think what we're all looking for as individuals. And we are seeing a a significant shift in weight placed on landscape and amenity and the public offer. And in our new home at Architectus, and I think that um, uh, many groups are kind of recognising this, but for us, it was really exciting to join a, a new comp- a, an existing company but as a new team where they really enticed us by saying they see landscape not as a want in today's design culture but really as a need, that it's something that we can't um, put to the side, do without or add on at the end. It has to be integral to how we see and develop our design.
1: You have worked overseas quite a bit. So how does that actually compare to how... Uh, landscape and of design uh, is viewed overseas?
2: A lot of my work overseas was in the Middle East, uh, a lot of that pre-GFC, and it was difficult in some ways to um, reconcile some of what was happening over there for me, I suppose, uh, and sitting with my values. While there is efforts to move towards sustainability from a landscape point of view and working in a desert, um, places where they're desalinating water and the cost of water, but really to keep landscapes alive, they're simply pouring water onto sand to keep keep those landscapes going and the desire to have bright green perfect lawns and tropical plants and, you know, lush environments is very difficult in those locations. And I think that one of the the trends, you know, that we're seeing certainly in hotels and hospitality um, and tourism, which is a big part of what they were trying to draw into those areas, is that now people are moving to a much more authentic experience and wanting to not feel like they go to the same hotel that could be anywhere but that they really have a sense of the place that they're in and an appreciation of um, of where, you know, the, the conditions, uh, the local vernacular and, and the local landscape. And so that's a good shift. Um, when we were kind of getting to the end of that period for myself, um, working just before sort of in 2007, just before the GFC hit, we were making um, some real impact uh, in trying to bring people like Simon Leake from Sydney Soils across um, and work with us over there. where We were working on reclaimed islands, but really looking at what could we do to try and reduce that water use, um, manage the soils, and also to try and change the perception around the use of local and endemic plants um, and make it a more authentic experience because people going there while it might not be so much appreciated by a local who thinks that they need to see something that might be somewhere else, say, through Asia or Europe, um, but as a tourist, you might have a much different appreciation for what is a really, you know, long, deep history, an amazing landscape and environment. um, And so changing people's minds about being able to experience that, I think, um, was really important. And... We, we were starting that process, but I haven't actually been back since that kind of GFC, so I'd be fascinated to go back soon and see how much um, they might have changed since then.
1: So let's talk hospitality. In terms of hospitality and or retail design, in, in my mind, they they're kind of they overlap. Um,
2: they do, yeah.
1: Ways. So um, what are some examples of, of innovative Landscape and biophilia uh, that has led to more sustainable outcomes of the finished design, um, as opposed to, you know, where your are it may not be as sustainable as <laughs> as it may look, as, as you just mentioned. So, what are some examples of, of, of where it, it actually has worked really well?
2: I think some of the best examples are. Uh, and I can think of a couple, one that we worked on, the canopy in Lane Cove, and there's also the Burwood Brickworks in, um, down in Melbourne. And both projects have retail, FAB, hospitality kind of um, components to them, but they're taking a very different approach in putting the big box um, under the ground, if you like, or underneath and providing public space and access to green. Um, in the case of the canopy, it is uh, an f precinct, a town square, a village green, a park, uh, playground, elements that really weren't available close to the town centre um, and also because of the topography in that area, making that actually accessible um, so people don't have to walk up and down all those hills that might have developed the beautiful natural landscape that's in that area, but it's not great if you've got a pram or, or you're in a wheelchair or, or even if you're just carrying your shopping around. So I think being able to give back public space within those sort of environments is really important. And by putting the big boxes under them, we're avoiding those huge roofs uh, that just add to urban heat, the blank walls that don't add anything to our streets. Uh, so that's really important. And the Brickworks in Melbourne, uh, again, similar project, much more retail focused, but they have introduced an urban farm on the rooftop. So, you know, that's linked in um, with their retail and another, you know, great initiative where they're making the most of the the big footprint that they're putting into a a site but providing that back as somewhere where people can really get outside um, and get connected to nature, which I think is really important.
1: The Burwood Brickworks, um, a lovely design. Um, it has obviously a lot of very good green markers, but it's like really obvious, isn't it? Like a lot of things they're doing, is, is, it's it's not, dare I use the term, it's not rocket science, is it?
2: I think you're right. Um, but somehow it, it seems to still take a bit of a stretch, doesn't it, to... Um... To get people to move that way, I think that hospitality and retail clients um, are probably more advanced in that thinking, actually. Um, I think they understand how that can differentiate themselves. And there probably is more research around uh, the difference in spending habits, and that, you know, there's obviously the need to draw people out and get people off their online shopping and into these environments so being able to offer something really really special is is important
0: Stormtech are proud to be Australian inventors manufacturers and 100% Australian made owned For over 30 years. All of Stormtech's product range are watermark certified, which is vitally important for building insurance. Sustainability is also one of the most important aspects of Stormtech's culture. In fact, they take it so seriously, they are the only drainage manufacturer worldwide to achieve gold and platinum green tag certifications. Stormtech's skilled specialists work closely with specifiers architects and builders to offer tailored drainage solutions including bespoke drawings and plans for customized drainage designs for all types of australian environments in addition they also offer a free on-site measurement service to find out more go to stormtech.com.au that's stormtech.com.au and now it's back to the podcast.
1: I, I, I'm old enough to remember this, so when, when I was told that in in ten years there we, will we, we'll be no more shopping centres and just doing everything online hasn't really worked that way. Um, I've got to say, do you think um, do you think Australia, uh, with its you know its famous love of outdoors and beach culture, and um, you know its 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 love of actually going out, as as, as you well know. Can Australia teach the world something about hospitality design in terms of biophilia landscape, and can we learn a thing or two from overseas?
2: Design is so intrinsically linked to place, um, and this probably goes for something that we could all learn in general, maybe not from each other, although some places are doing it better than others now, um, is is not to try to relocate ideas or experiences, but really to try and make the most of any particular place and any particular local situation. Um, and that goes from kind of giving that authentic experience of, of place and culture of people and right down to the sort of microclimatic conditions of creating those outdoor spaces and It can be everything from, you know, shade to wind to accessibility um, and that sort of sense of comfort and safety that makes all the difference. You can, for all the world, design something that you might believe as a designer is going to look amazing and and create an amazing space. And I won't won't mention any, but there is a number of incredible public spaces around the world that have been designed by, let's say, very famous architects. that never have any people in them and they are undoubtedly beautiful spaces and the only people who are there are other designers taking photos of them um, and trying to keep the people out of the pictures. But to me, that's, you know, that's not successful public space or successful space that contributes to, um, you know, to a, a hotel, a shopping centre, uh, a main street—successful public space is space that people really use, want to get out into, that everybody in the community um, feels comfortable using. Uh, that doesn't, yeah, that is is not exclusive um, in any way. That doesn't mean that it's not um, there isn't spaces that are luxurious or incredibly high quality, but everybody should feel pu- feel um, welcome think in public places so really looking for those things and designing for place I think is really important and maybe sometimes we have tried to replicate Or we try to replicate elsewhere but the smallest things like the local breeze can can spoil a success or you know make it amazing
1: what's one of your own favorite designs
2: um, I'm currently really excited about the the Blacktown Centre for Training Excellence okay. um, for many reasons, uh, but the main one being that it's really trying to embrace and invite a whole community um, into a, an area that hasn't been used and to encourage health and activity. So while the site has been well known um, as an Olympic site and there's elite sport, and elite facilities that are there and now with the new um, Best Hub facility that does provide the elite end but also um, health and activity for, you know, for everybody including rehabilitation. And we've introduced a physical literacy park within that and linked that with um, part of the Great Western Walk to bring people through the sports park, take them off the main road um, and hopefully get everybody moving. So it's really a all ages, all abilities, uh, everybody from the elite to people undertaking rehab and we don't want parents there watching their children. We want them engaged and taking part as well. So the idea of really getting people moving and also utilising a really underused facility um, and particularly in Western Sydney, where there isn't uh, enough space um, and enough facilities for everybody who's living out there, I think that's really exciting to be part of.
1: So let's talk. Let's talk water. Okay, you mentioned water earlier, especially in the hospitality area. Um, what are some designs that you've seen or you know of that you think are worthy of mention, perhaps even copying, in terms of water and, and hospitality and or retail? While we're at it.
2: I think that one of the the key things for water, a lot of water savings um, come operationally within hospitality and hotels, you know, we start to see very often now, you know, do we need to wash your towels or your sheets every night? Please let us know if we don't. Uh, From a landscape point of view, there's certainly a lot that we can do passively um, with landscape to improve the environmental performance of Um, hospitality, but one of the others is really to embrace, again, local, endemic and native species. And there has been a perception that um, I think particularly in hospitality that, you know, lushness, tropical is what we need to look for and that native or endemic species can't provide that. So from a landscape perspective, really looking at how we can provide beautiful landscapes that people can um, appreciate or learn to appreciate, but that might be low water is really important. Um, one example where they've, they have done that, and there is quite a few now on the kind of eco resort end of the spectrum. Um, but one example is the Emirates one and only resort in Walgam Valley, where they have A very naturalistic landscape. It's fairly minimal. They don't, you know, look for green lawns. They accept that um, the native grass that's kept down by the wombats and kangaroos is all part of the experience. Um, And the site really has minimal ornamental landscaping, but it is also very much part of that place. And they also engage the guests in the implementation of their environmental management plan, with a commitment to ongoing revegetation of their property, which means that you know people coming from overseas get out, get their hands dirty, um, and do planting that needs to happen over many years to um, revegetate and rehabilitate the very degraded land that's been cleared and grazed over many years. So I think where they're changing the perception of the kind of physical and visual environment to have people see that for what it its own beauty, uh, but also where people can get involved and uh, get another level of understanding when they um, come and have that stay. I think that's really important.
1: We do live in the world's driest inhabited continent, um, so what are some design features or design ideas that that you could share with us, where we that we think we we should embrace straight away, perhaps to help lower the water loss and water usage in Australia.
2: I think this is going to be a not rocket science answer, like your other question. Um, but the the use of of native species of low water plants, um, the implementation of greening on roofs in particular, which uh, has the where we can collect the water, but also use that water to sustain landscape that has a an, you know an ecological benefit, and also a benefit in fact to the functioning of PV that we put on roofs um, so often now and are required to provide. But those um, PV cells operate at a higher efficiency; you get more power out of them if the temperature is lower, sure. and so the implementation of green roofs. Um, actually increases the power we're getting out of PV and that efficiency, which is really important. And the collection of water and reuse and treatment, so whether that be in individual sites or individual developments wherever we can um, or in precincts or very much in wider scale development where we try to, Take water out of pipes wherever possible and put them back into more natural systems, um, and use that to enhance the ecology uh, of of areas and really improve um, the environment for all of those non humans as well as as people as well. You know, the, as we spoke about the biophilia and the connection to nature is really important. So it happens on a lot of levels and. There is some push particularly towards reducing building over everything with concrete and providing deep soil. It's one of those challenging balances for us um, in development often because land is so precious um, for anybody doing development. But it is also really important that we provide that open natural ground for um, plants to grow in. That's where they're supposed to grow. They don't have to be supported by irrigation. You get trees of good scale. So wherever we can, where we can get real natural ground, that's really important.
1: What is the most interesting and, for that matter, challenging retail or hospitality project that you've worked on and why was it such a challenge?
2: Uh, As I said, most of our retail and hospitality projects in a a lot of ways, um, there is sort of minor challenges, but quite often the clients are are very on board and quite informed, which is great. Uh, So we don't have to spend so long really pushing the importance of landscape or biophilia. But there is one project that kind of springs to mind as a challenge, um, the Paradise Centre in Surface Paradise, which was um, owned by Vicinity at the time I was working on it. And we were involved in a master planning exercise for that asset. Um, It's a a very traditional, internally focused shopping mall built in 1981. So also, as you can imagine, the styling was getting a bit uh, out of date. And there was a lot of new shopping centres being developed in the surface area like Pacific Fair, which came with a much more contemporary indoor-outdoor settings, landscaping, water features, outdoor dining, a really different experience. And it was only really exacerbating the challenges for the Paradise Centre. And so the master plan really focused on how we could turn that shopping centre inside out because it's in such an amazing location there. It's right on the main beach. Uh, it has Cavill Mall running down the side uh, on its long length. So the challenge was how to invert the shopping centre and and really activate the mall, which was going to be positive from a um, – a casual surveillance point of view as well, being where schoolies is held. That's very tricky. Has to be very robust, let's say in that area. And um, so, creating that kind of activated F and B retail frontage on both levels, and and turning uh, outside, making the most of that incredible um, climate. You know, you can you can be outside year round. So why not make the most of that? Because really, nobody wanted to go into an internal mall. And the beachfront area in particular was probably one of the strangest spaces I've ever designed or worked on where there was a long closed uh, water slide park that completely blocked the uh, retail centre from the beachfront. And so the first stage identifying that as the, you know, the really key linkage was to... Uh, have that area, the the old water park removed and reimagine that area as a waterfront F&B precinct facing straight onto the beach in a lot of ways, um, you know, a bit of a no-brainer, but making it something that would be loved by locals and tourists alike and had the capacity to host smaller pop-up events, things all during the year as well as um Withstanding the rigors that were going to be put on it during schoolies and New Year's and and times like that, so we saw that project through to the DA, um, and we've been really pleased to see that it's come to fruition recently with a, a local designer, and that it's been op- opened, and seems to really be being embraced now um, as we had kind of envisioned envisaged it. So um, it's always really. Satisfying to see those things uh, come through and work in the way that you think uh, you believe they're going to when you're designing them.
1: There is is there there is a, obviously this, this symbiotic, well, what well, I'm seeing a symbiotic relationship with in the hospital and retail with the way they're designing, or the, sorry, the colors that they're using in their designs. So I've noticed a lot of, dare I say, natural inverted commas colors. The browns, the greens, the you know, the, it looks more natural. So, do you think that's that's on purpose, or 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 or, or, or are we becoming more aware of you know the importance of of, of the natural world?
2: I think that um, again, there's all sorts of you know psychology understanding of of what colours and things do to ourselves, and retailers have have played with those that understanding for a long time, and I do think there is um, a trend towards the sort of natural, calming um, colours. It's certainly part of biophilia or even biomimicry that it doesn't have to be plants. It can be the colours, the patterns, um, as well as, you know, actual elements of nature that all have... um, all start to build on those effects. So real nature is the best, but um, elements and things that we can collect connect um, with nature are important too and all sort of feed into that. So, yeah, certainly we're seeing more of that. I think also there's a, um, a not so new, it's not a trend, movement, a shift to design with country. Um, and to really, which is um, just so important, I think, um, to understand what First Nations knowledge can bring to a place um, and in particular to be connected to a place, which is leading to more use of those colours, natural colours, natural materials, which in a lot of ways is excellent, although I don't think by any means is the depth of what designing with country can bring um, to our environments and what it can offer. There is so much more than that. And I do hope that we don't just see a period of that we look back on with a trend of using natural colours and that to be the legacy of designing with country um, or, for that matter, um, using traditional motifs because First Nations um, knowledge and understanding of place is so much more about sustainability and resilience and respect for the land and people and and so much more that I'm only just learning now. So it shouldn't just be about colours, but I do think that that is also one of the things that's um that's driving that at the moment.
1: So if given a free choice, and this is this is where I get to be your genie. Okay? Given a free choice, <laughs> I'll grant I'll grant grant you one wish. Or for that matter, to, given a free choice to design or for that matter, redesign any project in the world, can be here or anywhere in the world, what would it be and why would you pick this particular project?
2: I'm going to carry on on that same theme. Um, I think the greatest loss in design... In Australia, and our the creation of our environments that we live in now in Australia is that we um, certainly my ancestors who came here uh, as part of the first fleet um, didn't have any understanding or appreciation of what they could have learnt from the people who've been living here for sixty thousand or eighty thousand years and doing so sustainably and. I think if we had even taken on a portion of that knowledge to understand how to work with country here, um, with the, the harsh environment, then we would be in so much better position now. Um, and it's excellent to see that we, we are now starting that journey, but it's really, you know, over 200 years too late. And we've got a lot of making up to do uh, in terms of fixing poor decisions um, and you know creating poor outcomes that have really affected our environment. So I hope that we can all learn to embrace that and take it on um, and create a more resilient and sustainable um, future and approach to design that is much more than um, picking colors.
1: Mm-hmm. Esther Dickens, Principal at Architectus, Head of the Urban Futures Team and multi-award winning landscape architect. Thank you very much for your time.
2: Thank you so much.
1: You've been listening to Talking Architecture and Design and our interview with Esther Dickens from Architectus. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.
0: This has been Brank Amalitic and thank you for listening to Talking Architecture and Design brought to you from the Architecture and Design Network. Thank you once again to today's guest and StormTech, proud sponsors of our 2023 commercial design series. Be sure to check them out at stormtech.com.au. You can also head over to architectureanddesign.com.au for all the latest industry news, views, projects, people, and much, much more. See you next time.